0: Hey everyone, before we start, I wanted to let you know if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website. That's dc2.me and from the media drop down, click sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. Hey, if you're in the room, you can take a seat. If you're standing at home, right, great time to take a seat. We spend about 30 minutes of each week. Uh, just opening up the Bible and taking a look at what the Bible has to say and seeing what meaning we can make out of it. And I know, if, you know, for those of you who are church old-timers, for those of you who have been Christians a long time, it's very normal behavior, but if you are a guest with us, if you're not a follower of Christ, it can be a very strange thing that suddenly there's this one book that we put all of our energy into. And uh, you may not know a whole lot about the Bible. The, the simple deal is it, it's in two sections. The thicker section, the the majority of it, is the part that was written before Jesus came. And oddly enough, for those of you who are not church people, that's the part that church people tend to avoid the most. We tend to spend most of our time on the skinnier side of the Bible. You know, if we were ever listing our Bible on eBay, there's parts of it that you could sell for mint condition. We just very rarely read it. But But the next part of the Bible, the New Testament it's called, this is the part that gets started when Jesus comes. And so there's four books that are about the life of Jesus, and then there's a whole bunch of books that were letters of Jesus' followers. And that's where we spend most of our time as a church, and that's where we're going to spend our time today. And I think one of the reasons we tend toward that part is because Jesus came, He was with us in the flesh. He was fully human and fully God. He walked among people. He had Friends, he got hungry, he just had every human experience. It's really remarkable that God would shrink God's self down to become a human being and experience what it's like to be human. And then he was crucified by humans, but it was also something he willingly did to sacrifice himself for our sins so that we could be reconnected to god through jesus sacrifice and then after that he rose from the dead he did not stay dead and then he ascended to the father and what we believe and we have counted our life on it i know this can sound crazy at first but we believe that jesus right now is with the father and he's with us and so after jesus ascended to heaven god's holy spirit descended down into the life of the church and And so when we gather, like we do today, whether we're in this barn or whether we're online, we gather in the name of Jesus Christ and we gather by the power of God's Spirit. But what we don't talk about as much is how difficult it is to follow an invisible Holy Spirit. I I just think that's a tricky thing to do. And so I wonder if one of the reasons we spend a good bit of time in the New Testament is because we get to watch what it was like for these people to try to follow an invisible Holy Spirit in their lives, and one of these people who wrote a chunk of the New Testament, his name is Paul. Uh, just Paul. We don't even know his last name. Paul of Tarsus. For those of you who are more formal, and uh, one of my favorite characters in the Bible is Paul because he's such a troll. He's just he just likes to instigate and stir and disrupt, and he, he's like a gnat on the arm of the Roman Empire. He just gets in trouble. Um, I, I tried this first service. I don't know how well it went, but I enjoyed it, so I'm going to inflict it on you. Paul is the Patrick Beverly of the Roman Empire. Now, those of you in the room, does that refer- if that reference means something to you, yeah, that, yeah, like two, two, three people, four. Thanks, Bryson, my oldest, in whom I'm well pleased. Thanks for being there with me. Um, Patrick Beverly, he plays for the, uh, the Los Angeles Clippers and he's a defensive maniac. And you know, in the NBA, you want to be tall and thick, like, and and fast. If you're tall, thick, and fast, like LeBron James, you can dominate the NBA. But there's some guys, like Patrick Beverley, he's short and skinny. And he just—he can't barrel through anybody. He just kind of gets under their skin through the whole game, until he causes them to get a technical foul. Or sometimes he'll be so irritating, even the referees like, "No, I've had enough, Patrick." And he'll get a technical foul. He's just an instigator. He's a troublemaker. He's like a troll. Watching Patrick Beverly play basketball is just one of my great pleasures, even though I'm not a Clippers fan at all, because you can watch him slowly annoy the other team, that's Paul, that's this guy. And so when you read your New Testament, sometimes one of the interesting ways you can read your New Testament is to notice the cultural assumptions and phrases of the Roman Empire and see how Paul took those phrases and stole them from the Roman Empire and then gave them to Jesus. It's completely troll-like behavior. Like, for example, if you're a Roman citizen and you're riding a, a, a chariot, you could have a bumper sticker on your chariot, Caesar is Lord. One of the most common phrases in the Roman Empire. You really wouldn't go more than a few days walking around the Roman Empire, going to the market, picking up groceries, going to work, whatever you do, you really wouldn't walk more than a few days before you run into someone declaring that Caesar is Lord. And so Paul is like, oh, I'm going to troll that. And he took that Empire language, and he baptized it, and then he wrote all through your New Testament, Jesus is Lord. So every time in your Bible, when you read the phrase Jesus is Lord, you can picture Paul somewhere, this little gnat of a man going (laughs) like that. It's really something. Another thing Paul did is he trolled one of the favorite metaphors of Roman philosophers. They use this metaphor almost more than any other metaphor. That, that the Roman Empire is a body, they would say. The Roman Empire is a body, and the emperor is the head of the body, and we all have our different part to play. So those of you who are church people, or if you joined us last week, this should be starting to light some fires for you. Like Paul grabs Rome's, one of their favorite metaphors, and he drags it out, and he sticks it smack into the church, and, and you start to notice all the differences. In the Roman Empire, for example, it's all about hierarchy. So the emperor is, of course, the boss. The emperor in Rome, particularly in Paul's day, actually was considered a god. So you worship the emperor. Emperor is lord. You sacrifice to the emperor. And by golly, you did whatever the emperor wanted. And if you didn't do what the emperor wanted, you end up on a crucifix. Pretty simple. Pretty simple. And so the emperor was the only human being in the Roman Empire that could wear a purple toga. That's how you knew he was the emperor. I would pick something more majestic myself, but that was the rules in the Roman Empire. There was one purple toga in the entire Roman Empire, and it was worn by the emperor. Now, the next class down was the senators, and they would wear a white toga, still a toga, so not great, but they thought it was great. White toga with a purple sash, and then the next level were the equestrians, right? And then the next level were the plebes and then the slaves, and everyone knew their place in the body of the empire. So every body part in the Roman philosophy got a different kind of grading system. So the eye and the ear were worth a lot because they were the senses. But then like this part of the elbow or or like an ankle was really kind of bad and then we don't talk about the private parts. So that would be if I just I just saved you like you know, freshman high school Roman Empire history, that would be basically the general thing in the Roman Empire. And whatever part of the body you were born into, it's almost like a caste system in India. Wherever you were born, you really could only go down. There really wasn't a way to escalate your lot in life unless you got into some kind of fortune. So a lot of people would sacrifice to the gods to try to get lucky, and then they could maybe buy their way into a certain society and maybe become famous through the company. But but 99.5% of the people in the Roman Empire, they lived a hand-to-mouth existence, just daily sustenance, and all the energy went up to the emperor. And then, of course, Jesus came along and blew that whole system up, except actually he didn't at all. I mean, we look back and we say, well, Jesus changed everything. Actually, Jesus changed everything for a few thousand people in one tiny zip code in the armpit of the Roman Empire. And then Paul came along, this guy, and because Jesus changed Paul's life, Paul then spread that message all through the Roman Empire. People say he traveled 10,000 miles on a donkey through his lifetime to tell people all through the Roman Empire about Jesus Christ. What makes Paul so amazing is he himself was a Roman citizen. He could get places that other Palestinians and Israelites could never get because they were looked down on. So Paul was Jewish, but he was also Roman. And this is what's fascinating. He was a dual citizen. And when he became a follower of Jesus, he had a citizenship in heaven and he had a citizenship in the empire. But it wasn't for Paul like he had one foot in both, like he was trying to figure out how do I balance both. He was His allegiance was to heaven And then this earth became like his sojourn, like he he became an ambassador for the kingdom of God. It's just amazing. And he went around and he disrupted everything. You start looking at these stories of all of this hierarchy structure. When when Jesus came along and then Paul spread it, it's like the hierarchy got flat. Have you ever worked for a company that does a reorg? And, And someone above you, they say, we're now flattening the organization. And you're like, I'm still working for like seven bosses. It doesn't feel very flat to me. Jesus and and then Paul, they took this body and they flattened the whole operation to where Jesus is the head and every single human being, regardless of what color your toga, every single human being, same status. So for example, Lydia, uh, the, the scripture doesn't say a whole lot about Lydia, but she was a cloth dealer and you can read in your Bible, she primarily dealt in purple cloth. That means that she had uh, access to wealthy people. She's in the market one day, she's dealing her cloth, and this evangelist comes along, Paul, and he won't shut up. He's just right there in the marketplace proclaiming the gospel, and she believes it, and she goes home to her husband. We don't know her husband's name. Let's call him Mr. Lydia and she says Mr. Lydia I'm a follower of Jesus Christ now I'm renouncing my allegiance to Caesar and I'm now giving my allegiance to Jesus Christ and Mr. Lydia's like well that's just really weird but hey you know maybe it's a midlife crisis maybe it's menopause I don't know Lydia but just you do you do your thing and I'll keep doing my thing next thing he knows Lydia's coming home like just a few months later She's like, hey, Mr. Lydia, I've got an update for you. Paul just made me a lead pastor of the church in Philippi. I'm a lead pastor. And Mr. Lydia's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, baby. In the Roman Empire, women have no status. It's the man, right? It's the man's world. You do what I say. I mean, I'll let you have your cloth operation. She's like, All I can tell you is, is I listen to this other guy named Jesus Christ, and I'm now working. And so the, the power, the gender dynamics changed inside the church. I know there's a lot of argument today in church circles about men and women and leadership and all of this. All I can tell you is that outside in the Roman Empire, there were all these hierarchies, and inside the church, if you are a human being, you're equal. Or how about when, when Peter, some of you know this story in the book of Acts, When God says to Peter, I want you to go to Cornelius' house and tell him the good news. Cornelius was a Roman centurion. He had a tunic. He had medals and regalia. He was married. He had a household. He had slaves. And he understood hierarchy and authority and command. So Peter goes over to Cornelius' house. He preaches the gospel. And Cornelius basically says, you can read this in the book of Acts. Cornelius says, I'm in. And my whole household is in as well. We're all in. And you can just imagine like a guest at the house that day. is like, wait, what? I'm getting baptized now? Yeah. Why? Because the boss said you're getting baptized. That's the way it worked in the Roman Empire. Cornelius had a status and a hierarchy and whatever he says, you do. And so Cornelius' servant, let's call him John. John's like, okay, well, I guess now I'm following this weird Jewish God named Jesus Christ. So they all get baptized right there in the book of Acts. Every member of the household of Cornelius gets baptized. And and this isn't in your Bible. But I I can just imagine the next morning, Cornelius, brand new convert, gets up for breakfast and his tunic is ironed ready for the day. The slave has gotten up two hours earlier to get everything ready for the day. He's ironed Cornelius' tunic. He's cooked the meal for breakfast. Cornelius sits down And it's starting to rub on him a little bit that another human being is serving him now because we're equals. You know, Paul would go on to say, in Christ there is no slave or free. We are all one in Christ. And so Cornelius says to his slave, John, hey, John, next time we walk to church together, you and I are going to walk side by side like brothers. You don't have to be 20 feet behind me anymore. And when we're in church and it's time for communion, I'm going to serve you. I'll, I'll be the servant. You be the one receiving. It's radical. And so that just informs this passage we're going to read today. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. And just compare the hierarchy of the Roman Empire to what Paul says here. He says, The body is a unit, and though it's made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free. We were all given the one Spirit to drink. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. And if they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. And then Paul goes on to add to the Roman language. Like when Paul says in here, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. That was part of the Roman Empire propaganda. The reason you are a slave is because that's the will of the emperor. You need to be a slave to this person so the emperor can get what he wants. And Paul's trolling there. And he says, no, it's actually God that arranged everybody to be equal. And that's why in verse 26, as we jump down, Paul makes a stunning statement. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you, Paul says, are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. We're in a series where we're taking four weeks, and we're taking one passage, and we're going to read the same darn passage every week for four weeks. Some of you are like, this sounds really familiar. Didn't we do this same pa- last week? Like, Do we do reruns now at this church? Uh, as we were crafting this series, we thought it would be really neat as we celebrate the diversity of the body of Christ to have a diversity of speakers and points of view sharing the same text. So last week, Tom Morris, our executive pastor, kicked us off with the series on this very passage And I'll I'll just let you know, I'm not only a preacher, I'm actually, this may sound funny to you, but I recreationally listen to sermons. I love listening to sermons. And I've listened to a lot of sermons in my life. And Tom's sermon last week is the finest sermon I have ever heard on the church in 1 Corinthians 12. It was an absolute craftsman masterclass in 1 Corinthians 12. So if you missed it last week, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. It was stunningly good. And um, one of the things that Tom did is he kicked off an initiative that we're doing as a church where we are heading into the summer and making our next plans for the next years by figuring out, okay, who considers Discovery home? Who's with us? Who's in? Because it's been very difficult through COVID to figure out, who are we now? And so Tom launched an initiative. It's going to be on the screen now. And if you haven't done it, I'm going to ask you to do this now. You text I'm in. I know it looks like I'm in, but it's I'm in. You just go to the number 888-627-6035 and just let us know that you're in. This isn't like an obligation thing. It's not like we're going to suddenly send you a bunch of stuff. The fact is, I know that COVID has done a number on us as a church, and COVID has done a number on a lot of churches around the country, but we have really exciting plans ahead. Our unfinished campaign is unfinished. We have... Quite a lot of cash in reserves that we're excited to keep moving forward. But we need to know, okay, who is part of discovery? What is wise for God? What's God calling us to do based on the size and how we should budget appropriately? So just one of the many ways you can help is by letting us know that. And each week we'll be doing this. Now, Paul uses this body metaphor in several of his writings. It's actually one of his favorite metaphors. You can also find it in Ephesians, Romans, and this next letter, Colossians. And I just want to focus this week on this one body part that, that Paul talks about, Colossians 1.18. Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all the fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth Or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So, if you and I are all different parts of the body, Jesus is always the head, and that simply means that Jesus is sovereign, that Jesus is in charge, that Jesus' voice is the one we obey, Jesus is the king. And in Paul's culture, that was highly inflammatory language. And in our culture, that is highly inflammatory language. Even that word obey, it kind of sits on you wrong in Western culture and in American culture, right? Like the idea that we have a king, that we have a sovereign, that we obey that sovereign, that whatever that sovereign says to do, that's what we do. And uh, this is what it means to become a follower of Christ. Becoming a follower of Christ simply means that Jesus becomes the sovereign, the king, in charge the one that you obey in your life and it's not like an optional thing it's not like when you become a follower of Christ you just get to pick and choose what you want it's an all-in kind of operation and it's I'll, I'll just let you know as somebody who is has done this made this decision myself and is continually in the process of it it's a very difficult thing to do particularly in this culture. It's a very difficult thing to do. Just in the way that Paul was a dual citizen with the Roman Empire and heaven, anyone who becomes a follower of Christ in this culture also becomes a dual citizen of the United States and also heaven. And just in the same way that Paul, it wasn't an even fight. One had allegiance over the other. So it is with Christians where our allegiance to the kingdom supersedes our allegiance to our country. And I'll just let you know, uh, as somebody who's lived here for about three decades now, this is a phenomenal country to live in. I think as an immigrant, the United States of America is an amazing country to get to live in. But still, what's also true is my allegiance to this country is superseded by my allegiance to my King, Jesus Christ. And this is a country that celebrates freedom of religion and freedom of worship. So you don't get in trouble here by saying that. But Paul did in his day. That's why they killed him. is because there was no room in the Roman Empire to talk that way. So, okay, if, you, if you're a follower of Christ and if Jesus is your sovereign and Jesus is your king, how do you know that your life is changing? How do you know that you're living in such a way that God is your sovereign. And th- there's a couple of ways you can know. One is the level to which your life has been disrupted by the gospel. You can actually take a look at how much is my life being disrupted by the gospel since I first became a follower of Christ? How much is it being disrupted now? Because when you let Jesus into your life, he shows up and he moves into your heart, and then he just starts rummaging around in there. And he's causing all kinds of mischief. He's changing your priorities. He's changing your enemy list, your spending habits, your calendar, your social media behavior, what you live for. It's crazy. This week, I got to spend some time with a couple that 13 years ago, they sensed a strong call from God To give the rest of their life to eradicating human trafficking they actually started an organization 13 years ago and the mission of the organization is we won't rest until human trafficking is fully eradicated that's a big goal he was a banker she was a preacher they had no training no experience it's not like they'd gone on a mission trip and actually had some kind of exposure to human trafficking They were in a charismatic church tradition and they were simply in another country where she was preaching and they felt a strong, compelling call from God. You need to change the direction of your life and you need to spend most of the energy of your life, both of you, the banker and the preacher, and figure out how to reduce and rescue people from human trafficking. That was 13 years ago. I was talking to Nick, the husband, about it. He was telling me some of the early stories where they would start just cold calling and making appointments. They went to D.C. to try to learn about policy and legal matters and how do you do all this? And he said, you wouldn't believe the amount of times people laughed at us, just this banker and a preacher. No experience, no training. People were not taking them seriously. Now, 13 years later, I mean, they're still well into it, but they run one of the largest human trafficking rescue organizations in the world. They have staff all over the world. They're in Bangladesh and Thailand and everywhere, and it's huge. And so I'm talking to Nick, this banker, and I'm like, What's that like to hear from God, change your life, follow it, and now look at this thing. You've got this big budget. You've got this big staff. Every week, they're celebrating rescues. It's unbelievable. And Nick said to me, he's like, well, the way I see it, Nick, by the way, a very understated, laid-back guy, you'd never imagine he's this world changer. He says, the way I see it, God's an elephant. And you know, elephants are big. They just kind of go where they please. And he said, and my wife and I, we're just a pair of ants riding an elephant. That's all we do. We just, we're just on the elephant going where it takes us. Uh, Jesus doesn't meet our needs. In fact, he doesn't really care about our needs. He rearranges them. It, it isn't always about changing vocation like Nick and his wife. Sometimes it's also about how Jesus changes what our heart wants. Sometimes that's, you know, that's the way you know that Jesus is your sovereign, is Jesus actually gets into your heart and he changes what you want. I think that's my story. Like in some ways for me, yes, Jesus changed my vocational plans. Until I met Jesus, I was going to be a farm vet. That was the dream. Those of you who maybe lean toward England, the James Harriet stories. That's about all I ever read as a kid. I, I basically, to this day, have almost all of them memorized. I just wanted to be a farm vet. I just wanted to deliver a cow. I don't know why, but it was just a dream of mine. And this doesn't really relate to the sermon, and it's not in the notes, but I feel compelled to tell you I have delivered a cow. <laughs> yep, I have. Thank you. I have delivered a cow. So fear not. If you ever need help, just give me a call. I'm your guy. But Jesus came along and he changed the course of my life. That's true. But he's also changed what my heart wants. Uh, You know, I still sin, of course, but the longer I'm a follower of Jesus, the less sin appeals to me. It just loses its appeal. It's almost like God gave us desires and then the enemy twists them and disorders our desires. And so our conversion journey is God reordering our disordered desires. There's a therapist, he lives about an hour down the road. He's actually a world-renowned therapist named Michael Cusack. And he wrote one of the most helpful books on pornography called Surfing for God. The idea is that when people are late at night surfing the internet for porn, Cusack says what they're really surfing for is a connection to God said goes in and he talks about how our desires are being twisted to where we settle for something short-term and less, some kind of instant gratification. But if we can just understand that our soul desire wants something through that, which is intimacy and connection and feeling loved and seen. And so Surfing for God, what makes it such a helpful book is he's really not shaming people who struggle to break a habit. He's inviting them to really notice their deepest soul craving and find it in Christ. So submitting to the sovereignty of God, it isn't just about God blowing up our worlds and changing our outward lives. It's also about God healing our heart's desire. And I think we don't talk about this enough in church because it doesn't sound right. What I'm about to say, For some of you who've been around church for a while, you're going to think that sounds almost heretical, I think. But I think that it is harder for you and I to change the sovereignty in our life than it was for Paul in his day. Uh, Let me put it this way. I don't think Paul's life was easier than ours. I think Paul's life objectively was way harder than our lives. Objectively harder life. Okay, I'll stipulate to that. My point is that Paul's conversion journey was shorter than ours is. And that was the easier path for Paul. And for us, it's harder. Now, before you look at firing me as the lead pastor, which, good luck, I'm kind of a lame duck around here anyway. Think about it. Paul converted from one belief to another. He converted from the sovereignty of God revealed in Judaism to the sovereignty of God revealed in Jesus. That's a short journey. Paul's whole life, Paul converted from, I believe God wants me to beat people up in the name of God, to, I believe God wants me to love people into the kingdom. That's actually, I know that sounds like a long journey, that's not a very long journey, A zealot for God, and he became a zealot for Jesus. That journey is about this far. I'm not speaking down about Paul's journey. I think it's miraculous. And Paul had a very difficult life. Our conversion journey, much more difficult. It's a larger faith leap. We move from the sovereignty of self, where you're in charge, you're the boss, you get to dictate, to the sovereignty of God. It's a much bigger journey. This culture... This culture reinforces that you're in charge. You get to be in control. You're the center of your universe. You know that doctors now actually have selfie related injuries? that they look for in their diagnosis. That's how self-absorbed our culture's become. That you can actually start noticing the selfie injuries per year to measure how self-absorbed our culture has. I'll just show you some photos that I found this week that are selfie injuries waiting to happen or worse. some. Now, this is in Japan because people are taking selfies on the subway platform, the Shinkansen train runs through and runs them over. It's crazy. And then we have this guy uh, way up high with his feet dangling over so we can get a photo of the thing that if he fell and dropped, he'd be dead. And then it gets increasingly more funny. And then my favorite, the piece de resistance. Screaming girl (laughs) while the guy's taking a selfie. we're, we're, We're losing our minds. Our doorbell broke recently. It's not big news, but I thought I'd share it. And so we decided, OK, it's time to move into the 21st century. We've got a video doorbell, a ring. I was not aware that when you install a ring, it installs itself on every device in the house. And I've got that third-party doorbell, those of you who are ring experts, so the doorbell is now in our family room. But then anytime someone rings it, my phone rings, my iPad rings, my watch rings. they all ring at the same time. My wife's phone rings, and the whole house basically is saying, "There's someone at the door. That's fine. We're coping. We're coping. But the thing I was not expecting is that Ring automatically connected me to a social media community. Ring has a social media community of other Ring customers in my neighborhood, and it's like a three to five mile radius from my house. Every time someone's package gets stolen off their porch, I hear about it. And don't take this the wrong way. If you've had your package stolen off your porch, I'm very sorry for you, but I don't really care. Like is that wrong is that wrong? did i say that out loud i don't care what do you want me to do about it like listen if it was my immediate neighbors the five houses around me i would take it seriously i'd be on neighborhood alert i'm a good neighbor but like three miles away cry me a river people like and listen porch thievery is a real problem it's a real problem but it's like we live in a country where we believe that anything less than 100% the beautiful life in our life is ruined. You wouldn't believe the outrage on the comments. The outrage because someone stole your Amazon package. I get it. It shouldn't happen. I'm not justifying the behavior. Here's my point. We live in a culture. Well, I'll, I'll quote Bishop Will on. He can say it better than I can. We think it is our right to be able to control all the forces in our world just like God and we feel terribly hurt, terribly betrayed when we cannot. I think our conversion journey is harder and I think this is why we should talk about it more of what does it look like for each one of us in this room and each one of us tuning online to take a next step of trust and letting Jesus be our sovereign king. I'm going to invite the band out and I just want to show you a couple of ways to consider. We're actually going to put some things on the screen and give you a chance to maybe have some time with the Lord. I think the path is less about doing and it's more about dying. It's less about instigating. It's more about surrendering. And so I just want to ask you, what's the next area of your life to submit to God's sovereignty? I get really suspicious when Christians talk about following Jesus in absolute terms, like they'll say, I'm now a fully devoted follower of Jesus. I'm like, how, how could you possibly know that? I'd be really interested in it. How do you know you're fully devoted? That seems like something we could never really say. But I think what we can do is look at the different areas of our life and sift them through the sovereignty of Jesus. So I just made a list for us. This is not an exhaustive list, but I'm going to pop it on the screen for you. And we just want to give you about 30 seconds before we go back into worship where you can just read this list and just spend some time with God and just ask God, okay, Lord, is there one or two or a few of these areas in my life that you're actually calling me to trust you with, that I'm trying to be in control and you're inviting me to trust you with control? If it's helpful to take a photo of this list and then go home and do some work with God on your own time, you can do that. But before we sing, just some time for you and the Lord, just some quiet, whether you're at home or in the room, does God have something for you on this list or does this list provoke something else for you? where God's inviting you to hand it over to God's sovereignty.